1: So the way the Bitcoin protocol is designed is um, it gives people incentives. It's, It's a little bit like the protocol is bribing people. It's basically like giving people money that, hey, if you do this work for me, I will give you money. So Bitcoin is literally, the protocol is printing money in the form of Bitcoin, right? And it's saying that if you, it's basically giving payment to anyone who believes in the project and is willing to take that
0: payment. Mibali, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm very excited about this. As I was telling you before we started rolling, when I first started researching you, I knew you were interesting, but I didn't know that you sat at this intersection of what might be one of the most important questions in crypto and web three. And that is why web three at a financial level is gonna be so important. Revolutionary, I think. And that, that was the thing that I really I started taking crazy notes and I was like, oh my God, like this, the, the idea around how this is going to be a revolution, um, you somehow sit at the nexus of that. And I've watched a lot of people in the industry get caught up sort of in a very similar wave and you have remained a contrarian voice. And so I wanna start at the beginning. If you don't mind, give people a very quick primer, cause we're gonna go super deep, but give people a quick primer on what Web3 is, and then we're gonna dive into why it matters. Yeah, so I think
1: for people who don't know what Web3
0: is, think of think of this,
1: uh, like we have kind of like the basic internet infrastructure, think of that as the plumbing of the internet, right? Like you are kind of like exchanging data, uh, But then initially, what you would call web one, it was kind of like read only, meaning that you can just go online, all you can do is you can just like read on a website, or just like you're consuming information, right? Like you're kind of like a passive person. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, uh, in the early 2000s was the start of web two, which a lot of people can relate to it, right? So it was interactive, it was read plus write. So when you're posting a uh, a tweet or a picture on Instagram you're actually writing something like you're and, and then people engage with it right so it became more interactive so it became like read and write and web3 interestingly adds like one more uh, characteristic or dimension to that which is own you can now actually own things online so you, you can still read and write but you can now also own things meaning that uh, you can own Bitcoin. Like it's, it's like a strong sense of ownership. like You directly own that thing. No one can take it away from you. Similarly, you can own other types of digital objects, like like NFTs, which I know
0: that you're interested in. <laughs> Interest <laughs> and, may be the understatement yeah. of the year. Yeah, I'm completely obsessed. NFTs, though, for me is... So I, th- I really want people by the end of this interview to understand the difference between ownership... NFTs to me is ownership. It's not a financial instrument. That's like the drum I've been beating that I get a little bit of flack. because I think people are treating NFTs like a financial vehicle. I think that's mm-hmm. a mistake, but that's a whole nother argument. But there is another component to ownership, which is Bitcoin. And to me, Bitcoin and, and other things that really do act as money. Do you differentiate those two in your mind or like, no, ownership is ownership? No,
1: I think I think they're different things. And it it is very... Um maybe maybe it's worth it like diving into that concept a little bit more because people like in their daily lives they don't really think about ownership that much right like mm-hmm. le- like you're you're let's say you're sitting in your house and you bought it uh you're on re- you you just think that you own the place you never think about how exactly do you own it well you own it because there are uh there's there are property laws and they're enforced right And you trust that, let's say uh, here in in the United States, those laws are enforced pretty consistently and everyone can kind of like trust the system that Mm -hmm. if there is a conflict about who actually owns, you know, this house, uh, we can rely on our our laws and we can actually resolve that conflict. In some other country, maybe, you know, I, I grew up in Pakistan and there would be, you know, in some villages, a lot of people would have conflicts about land. Like who actually owns this land, right? And because, you know, some of either the laws are not clear or some people are corrupt. uh, So you can't like sometimes you can't even like rely on the local system for how do you resolve those conflicts, right? So whenever you're, you're thinking about what does ownership mean, like if you go a level deeper, like how exactly do you own something like money in your bank account? Let's say, you know, I have a Bank of America. You feel like it's my money, but... You know, we saw recently and when there were protests happening in Canada when the Canadian government actually oh. started seizing bank accounts for people who are like giving tips to somebody to go have a bagel mm. or something like that. Right. And suddenly you realize that, wait, that's not my money. Like it can be taken away from me because and, and that's where the concept of ownership kind of like keeps getting deeper. And when Bitcoin comes to the picture it really like baffles people initially like, because they, they actually don't have any reference point for what strong ownership actually even means because we have never had strong ownership ever before. So the way you own Bitcoin is that you have, you know, your, your private key, which is people should think of that as a very, very, very long password. It's like a secret. Like you're not supposed to tell anyone, you know, what the secret is, but as long as you have it, you have this really, really long password, which is a secret. You can actually mathematically prove that I own Bitcoin, Mm.
0: right? This was just simply not possible before ever, right? In in society. And I think there's an important part there for people to understand. So decentralization, which from an entertainment NFT standpoint, I'm actually not that bothered by whether it's centralized. I mean, I'm saying this because I'm super biased because we are a centralized uh, project, but i don't worry about that but when it comes to the money side of things all of a sudden decentralization starts to seem very very important can you explain to people how the blockchain of bitcoin works what is exactly being decentralized and i know you're not a big fan of the idea of a world computer but as an analogy, I find it very helpful to understand what's going on at a technological level on a blockchain, sure. a distributed blockchain. So I think I think
1: um, let's build up on 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 this example where you know I I have this private key and I can prove to you that I own Bitcoin. Um, how, basically, what you can do is you're able to sign something. Like think think of it like you know. Normal people would have a checkbook, right, and they can they can sign something. But their their signatures are easy to forge, right? Like somebody else could also sign something that looks like your signature, mm-hmm. right? So these signatures are basically, unless like someone can come up with the exact same private key, you they're impossible to replicate, right? You would need like you know some insane amount of a supercomputer that consumes the more energy than is in is available in this like you know we solar system see or the something sun like that dimming. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly like it's 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 crazy moon math type of a stuff right so um, let's say you know you understand that concept that okay no one can forge this signature only the person with the private key can do it then you know the next thing to visualize is some sort of a global ledger right just like bank accounts like the bank kind of like controls the ledger The bank says, you know, I have a hundred bucks. This other person has like 200 bucks, something like that. We need like a global ledger that um, anyone can use and anyone can basically verify that this information is correct. And you're not depending on any single party that basically controls the ledger. How is that possible? Right. So this is the thing that blockchains cracked. And more specifically, Bitcoin was the first one. And that was the true innovation, I think. Because this problem has never been solved before, where you're always depending on some company, right? Like, let's say, uh, again, to make it relatable to normal people, like, when you're logging into Facebook, Facebook, the company decides that, you know, your password is right or or, or not right, and you can have access to your account, or you, you cannot, right? In the Bitcoin world, in the blockchain world, like, there is no company, right? It's fully decentralized, and it's just kind of like you know code and, and mathematics and if you have the private key you can spend your funds. If you don't have it, nothing can happen in the world and you there's no way for you to access access those funds. Right. So it's like a trustless system that just works without having any central point of control. And that's the key thing that you know a
0: lot of people get get, get confused about. The way my simple mind can grasp you've got Timmy, Sally Susie, Bob, uh, Muni, like a whole gaggle, thousands of people mm-hmm. that all have something running on their own personal computer that keeps this ledger. And that ledger is designed to sync up, basically, with each other. And the distributed, decentralized nature of this is that anybody can put this ledger on their computer and be a node and join the network, and now 51%, I would assume, all have to agree that this transaction, this update to the ledger is legitimate. And if they do, boom, the ledger is automatically updated across all thousand, 10,000, 100,000, whatever, how many computers are on the network. And so the odds of even a state actor being able to identify where those computers are, simultaneously hack them, and get them to report what they wanted to report is virtually zero. So they're they're not going to be able to do it. Once I understood, okay, wait, this is a world computer that is... Running on all these individual computers. So I can imagine the Google or Facebook, like super network of servers somewhere in Iceland, you know, deep underground. And we've all seen those images, but it's a really different picture. And I can imagine somebody, you break into one of those places or you have the keys because you're Google, Facebook, whatever, you can go do whatever you want. Like no one will ever know, right? You can just manipulate the entries in a database and you're good. Whereas with something that's truly decentralized, because it's on Rando's computers, the, the benefit of that is while any one of them maybe could do something to their computer, the odds of you getting all of them to coordinate is again, effectively zero. Yeah. And so, so once I understood that, that this is just normal people all over the place that have decided to join the network for reasons to be honest, I don't completely understand. Are they miners? I'm not sure, um, but they have some incentive to have this ledger on their computer, and they all are in sync. Yeah, so I think I think I think uh, let's take a deeper dive, right? So there there's a little bit
1: more to it, which may, maybe we can uh, jump into a little bit more. So basically, now forget you know we had the high level understanding, we had the description that you had, and now let's try to like dig a little bit deeper. Right? So what's happening is, um, just like you know, Facebook runs their computers in a data center, as you mentioned. Uh, This network, let's call it the Bitcoin network uh, Needs people to operate it, right? It needs some people to kind of like run the network and actually have the physical computers uh, Which are going to do the processing that is needed for doing transactions on this network So the way the Bitcoin protocol is designed Is um, it gives people incentives It's, It's a little bit like the protocol is bribing people It's basically like giving people money that, hey, if you do this work for me, I will give you money. So Bitcoin is literally, the protocol is printing money in the form of Bitcoin, right? And it's saying that if you, it's basically giving payment to anyone who believes in the project and is willing to take that payment, right? And then in terms of uh, how the network works, there there are basically like two types of actors. One is, you know, when you're describing that there are all these different types of users, Most of the users who are running the Bitcoin like full nodes, uh, they're mostly doing it either for themselves or they want to support the network and they want to kind of like have a node online. A normal node doesn't really participate in mining, right? So the process of actually um, writing new information to to the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, miners are kind of like responsible for that. So miners are, think of that as like, you know, those people are more dedicated to the network. And what Mm -hmm. they're saying is, that, in addition to running a node on the network, I'm going to actively participate in this competition. so mining is kind of like a competition that there's money at the table, every block, which is roughly ten minutes, and people are competing over who gets to pick up pick up the money so everyone's trying to do work, and uh, the protocol has like this basically algorithm that that uh, almost like randomly like based on how much like compute power that these people are willing to spend on it, picks a winner every 10 minutes. So and they're
0: solving a cryptogra- cryptographic puzzle, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're
1: solving these, these puzzles. And they get
0: harder or easier depending on how many people are competing for it yeah. so that it always comes out to be roughly 10 minutes a block, right? Yep. Okay. So
1: then you should think of the miners as the operators of the netbook. So when a normal user comes and says, here's my transaction, they just don't. They don't have to like become a miner and write to the blockchain themselves. They just broadcast it, and some miner picks it up, and writes it on their behalf. Right. So miners are kind of like they are the operators, and they write. Uh, they write to the to the blockchain, mm. and then the other nodes are super important, right? So the normal users, the normal nodes that you were talking about, they are kind of like your independent verification. the network because the beauty of the Bitcoin network is that anyone can start up a new computer install the software start from zero and independently verify
0: that this copy of the blockchain is the correct one has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply and that's a very very important property to have like because
1: think of think of this way you're not trusting anyone you could be like in the middle of japan or like in some village somewhere with a satellite connection download the software you're not trusting any other human right you if somebody gives you like three different copies of the bitcoin blockchain you can run your software from from the start and independently decide this is the right one these two copies are not correct right so that's the beauty of like um the 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 bitcoin system where Anyone can independently do this. So what you're doing is you're decentralizing trust. You're giving more power to the people who can run the software themselves. And who are like, you know what? I, I don't need to trust any other person on the planet because
0: I can run my own software. And this is all happening automatically, right? So the code of the Bitcoin network itself does all of that. And it's literally every time going all the way back to block one and retracing its steps to make sure that that block or does it put like bookmarks and only run it from it, the it does
1: it does so you could force it to recompute but if you run a new node it will kind of like download the blocks and in, independently verify them but
0: once you're running a node then it just needs to uh, stay in sync and then as that node checks it it will report back to the mothership, the main uh would you call it netbook So there is no mothership. But it's reporting back to the other nodes that, hey, I agree this is right or no. So it's, it's like so now we are touching the
1: concept of like decentralized consensus. Right. So now everyone's let's say there are thousands of people around the world. Everyone is running the nodes and the miners are the only ones who are writing. Right. So when the miners write, sometimes these miners fight with each other as well. Right. Let's say that there were two miners, one, one of them was like, I won the block, and here's the right copy. The other one was like, no, you know what, I won the block, and here's the copy of my chain. And what happens is now your node is, can actually see that there's, there are two different copies that are coming to me, which one is the right one. So the way Bitcoin works is always the longest chain wins, because the longest chain represents the most amount of work being done, mm. right? So other miners will basically, because they have money to lose, right? Like if you're working on a chain that will end up not being the longest one, you just lost money because the you should have been on the correct fork mm. uh, and and doing your work on the correct one. So there's a strong economic incentive for these conflicts to very quickly get resolved automatically. So your nodes can actually see all of that, and that's why. Sometimes people will tell you that if you do a Bitcoin transaction, wait for at least six, six confirmations because it's basically mathematics that after six confirmations, the probability that you know, there, there, there might be a fork on the network um, basically goes down to almost zero. Mm. So if you, if you have waited for like six confirmations on the network, you're effectively, you know,
0: now, now your transaction will be safe, basically. Okay. So now hopefully people, and I'll recap quickly, but people now understand what this is. So a technology was created, Bitcoin, by a mystery entity known as Satoshi. Um, And what they gave us was this distributed ledger that anybody can spin up, only so many people can write. But all these other people are going to be able to verify whether that's accurate or not. There are financial incentives all around to make sure that people aren't lying, uh, to make sure that there's plenty of people that to use your words, have been bribed to you know, confirm that this is all working. And so now we have a consensus that effectively can't be hacked, that's the right way to think about it. And so now we can take something that's digital, and for anybody that's hearing this for the first time hear this well, you take a digital object and you have now been able to give it the same sort of um, scarcity properties of a physical object. So that, I mean, to be honest, it's better, if I'm quite frank, because i don't know how many of these mugs exist whereas with an nft just to put it back in my language because that's where i deal i know exactly how many of that item were created and anybody that spins up uh, in the case of working on the ethereum blockchain which is where we do our our nfts it's like anybody that puts up a, a marketplace that can read what's on the blockchain can tell you exactly how many of that are they will all agree so it's you can find out how many of something exists. So now you know exactly how rare it is, you know which one you have, what one somebody else has. So all of the the sort of latent economic energy that was leaking out of the system in digital goods because you, you couldn't, A, you couldn't make it more complex. So what I always tell people is an NFT is not a picture, it's a picture with matrix code hidden inside of it. Once you understand the power of that matrix code, then you really understand NFTs, and so now it isn't just an image anymore, A, and B, now I can track who owns that image, and if people care enough to be one of the owners, and they can guarantee that now I have it. Now whether humans should care about ownership or not is irrelevant, they do, and so this technology allowed us to track that into the digital world. Okay, so that's like the the big innovation that, um, depending on where you draw the lines of what Web3 is, To me, it is, Web3 is the ability to own a digital item in a provable way and all of the consequences therein. And there are huge ramifications once you understand what you can build on top of that. And that's where this conversation, I think, is about to get really interesting. Now, I think of it from an entertainment perspective, but today what I really wanna talk about is, I heard you in an interview running through a hypothetical situation that stopped me in my tracks about the way like interest works on your money. You were talking specifically about Bitcoin and you said, imagine a day where there's a marketplace where people can lend money, review lenders, review people that review borrowers. I was like, Oh my God, like this gets crazy. So if you don't mind, walk us through that hypothetical situation and for context how does money work today and how is this going to open up a level of creativity that i think will shock people awesome yeah let me let me dive into it and
1: then i'll I'll come back to some of the ownership and and the nft stuff as well um so interestingly you know so far we have discussed bitcoin bitcoin is you know this new type of money that nobody controls right so it's like um, in some ways it's like open source technology that created money that is not controlled by anyone and that 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 type of thing has never existed in in our society in our history
0: uh, ever right so why do you think that it created money because that's a really interesting way to phrase it think, think of like humans even
1: when you know we used to live in in tribes will always find ways to trade with each other right and they will always find ways to ascribe certain meaning to certain objects for those for the trading to take place right so that's why we had gold that's why we had those seashells that's why we had those like other types of uh, physical objects that would represent some value because humans like by nature they want to they want to they wanna trade they want to you know i, I I'm, I'm a farmer i'm growing something and i will sell it to you and i want something else back right this is how human civilizations like Come together independently in different kind of like geographic regions over and over again and whenever people are agreeing on like some sort of of a um, of a medium of trade right like you're ascribing some certain value to it right and then that's that's how money started right like people were like hey instead of using gold i will start using paper and then you know paper and gold were linked and and then you know we 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 have evolved over the years so to think of money as basically kind of like, you know, both a store of value and something with which we can, we can trade with, uh, with, with other people. And interestingly, um, again, double clicking on these systems, you would find out that gold was a good proxy for something being scarce. Mm. Because we, we, aren't, we aren't certain that, you know, somebody w- can find a really big gold mine. Right. And suddenly, you know, there's a lot more gold in the world now than there 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 used to be right but bitcoin there's only 21 million right so it's crystal clear that what the supply is how scarce this asset is no one can change it right so it's not like the government can decide that hey we're going to have 9% inflation and suddenly <laughs> your your
0: your money is worth less mm. sitting, sitting sitting in your bank account right so I'll, i think it's worth belaboring this point just for a second so stars explode, they emit gold, gold crashes into the earth, gets embedded in the crust as it crumbles and moves around, and it gets buried and it's hard to extract. So it also uh, is very resilient, so it doesn't mold, it doesn't rot, Uh, you can melt it down and it remains pure. Like there's a lot of properties that led a lot of different civilizations to ultimately coalesce around gold. But they tried all kinds of things. I think you said seashells earlier. So they try all this different stuff. They need a universal medium of exchange because maybe I'm good at basket weaving. Maybe you're really good at harvesting corn. I I don't want to have to know how many baskets equal how much corn. And so we all come up with this medium of exchange. We all, because of its properties, come to gold. Uh, The problem with gold is it's fucking heavy. And so carrying that around and being afraid that somebody's gonna (laughs) jack me for it, uh, we start coming up with proxies. The proxy we come up with today is, well, entries in a database. But people think of it as paper money. Pretty lame properties, though, when you really think about it. it. Becomes fiat because we break the relationship between that money and the gold it was supposed to stand for. So now, to your point, governments can inflate the life out of it. I won't derail this conversation with that, but people should look into inflation. It's terrifying. It's eating all of your money. Uh, So, yeah, it's like a whole thing, which I didn't understand. And once I did, I became very paranoid. Um, Okay, so now that we understand that civilization, because we specialize in things, our time is finite. So we can't get great at everything. We have this universal medium of exchange. And along comes Bitcoin. And it has properties that make it better than gold. That was like, these are all the pieces that probably seem self-evident to you. I've had to cobble those together to be like, why are people so excited about this? How did this open source thing create money? Why did people care? Right, so I think
1: you you got it exactly right, right? So you you get Bitcoin and then honestly, like I'm, I'm a computer scientist, right? Like I, when I discovered Bitcoin, I was more interested in the network and how it's working, right? Like the money thing actually, even for me, came much later when I started realizing when I started seeing so many community members getting so excited about the fact that they finally have sound money, like money where supply cannot be changed. You're not trusting any government, any entity. It's not just about governments. I'm not anti-government, right? Like it's just that you don't have to trust anyone. And that is a lot better than trusting any type of, you know, organized, you know, uh, institution that can just decide to change things right like the 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 fed has basically in the recent years they just decided to, to print a lot more money and some people are getting hit really hard because of that right if, if if people who are listening to this podcast if you're feeling that prices are going up like you know gas is getting expensive your groceries are getting expensive prices are not going up your money is becoming less valuable so how you feel it on a day-to-day basis, it feels like things are getting more expensive, right? And the reason that the money is becoming less valuable, single biggest reason, regardless of what, you know, the narrative on the media might be or they're trying to spin it, the single biggest reason is they're just printing a ton of money. So if they're printing a lot more, obviously it's going to devalue, right? It's, it's I it's, don't it's, think it's that's like
0: obvious for a lot of people. It the, wasn't for me. It took me a long time yeah. to wrap my head around, wait, what? Why? Here's, here, here's a very interesting example. Imagine that, you know,
1: the government decided that this year they're going to automatically withdraw 10% money from every U.S. national's bank account. Boom, one day they come in, you had 100K in your account, now you have 90K, right? Single day, they took that money. I think there will be riots on the streets. People will be like, what the hell happened? Like, you, you can't just take money out of my account. 10%, like, how, how do you do that? They did that in Cyprus. That shit is crazy. Right. That is literally the effect of inflation. Over, over the year, if there's 10% inflation, your 100K is now worth 90K. But it, because it happens slowly...
0: It's like you're you're, it's got way better PR, right? You didn't take anything from me. You should take anything You just made it less valuable. You just made it less valuable That's so brutal Okay, so we don't want our money inflated away. So Bitcoin has this cap 21 million That's all it's ever gonna be we can prove it by looking at this distributed ledger We've already talked about why that's way better. So people can buy into it. It's sound money. Cool rad I get you know why that matters. So now that we have this sound money why does this become a revolution how does this open up this creativity in you know the future where you're painting this picture of these marketplaces so one i think people have to Get an understanding. So right now, if I have money in savings, I get kiss for it. It yep. may even at this point be negative, right? Because of inflation. So yep. just holding it means I'm actually losing buying power over time. The number of dollars stays the same, but what it buys is less. So it's effectively going down. Um, so I don't think right now people are very excited to save, but Bitcoin may offer a solution. Yep. So
1: I think this is this is the beauty of uh, technology and especially like open source technologies, right? Um, I, th- I think a classic example would be the when the internet started and you know web 2.0 when you could interact, right? And Wikipedia came online. So Wikipedia is like literally normal people, ordinary people around the world, they're like, "Hey, I know something about this topic and I'm going to like try and write write it in 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 the Wikipedia." And then other people would try to collaborate. And people, people are kind of like, they're collaborating around learning, right? So if somebody puts wrong information, they would argue about it. They would figure it out. And if you look at that time, Wikipedia looked like a joke, right? Compared to actual encyclopedias. And fast forward 10 years, your, your, your classic encyclopedias are going out of business. And Wikipedia is now the best source of information on the planet right? Because ordinary humans, these citizens of the internet came together, and they started figuring things out themselves, right? Like, how oh, this is how you write an encyclopedia, and we can collaborate and do it. Now, now apply that analogy to Bitcoin. Once, you know, they got Bitcoin, they're like, oh, this is how money works. And I, I now understand it, that there's there's only 21 million, no one can change it. Uh, now, let's see how the banking system works, right? So usually on a day-to-day basis, I think people weren't even thinking about these things, right? They're like, yes, the only way money works is like, you know, I get a paycheck and I put it in my bank account. Here are the rates, you know, they publish new rates once in a while. And this is how the system works. But now you have the tooling, the open source tooling to start playing around with these things that, okay, I have my Bitcoin. Do I want to self custody it? Do I want to give it to somebody else? If I put it to some productive use, How much are people willing to pay me for that, right? And it turns out a market emerges, like, you know, entrepreneurs come in. They're like, if you want to lend me your Bitcoin, I'll actually give you a 6% yield. And they're like, what? 6%? You're willing to do that? Uh, Because from my bank, I actually don't get very high yields at all, Mm -hmm. right? So it's it's a little bit like now these normal average citizens are kind of like tinkering with things themselves and are figuring out how the financial system sort of works. And then they realize that what, what has been happening so far is in the banking industry, and no offense to you know my friends who work in this industry, it's literally, you're kind of scamming people. Like you take their money, they put all the money in the, in the bank. The bank goes off and makes a lot of money on that. And they give nothing back to the actual owner's who deposited the money. They basically get pennies, like barely even pennies, right? There's always a joke at tax time when you look at your you know, savings account statement. And where's the money going? The banks are keeping it. They're keeping all the profits, right? That's, that's how the system is working. And suddenly you decentralize it and people go like, wait a minute. If Let's say for this example, that 6 to 7% was the actual yield when you're lending out money to somebody and they can put it to productive use, uh, why shouldn't I get all of it? Maybe I should pay some fees to some parties in the middle. And then these systems are very efficient, right? So banks are also inefficient on on, on top of kind of like this model of where we are not gonna give anything back to the users, Uh, they're also inefficient. So they lose a lot of money because there are so many parties involved and they have inefficient systems. And these young entrepreneurs, with open source technologies are building much more efficient markets, right? So that leads us to things like smart contracts where people can now program a lending protocol. So instead of like a bank and, you know, a bank working with another bank and they're, they're kind of like coordinating to figure out how to do lending, it's, it's just a computer program because now money is programmable, right? Bitcoin is programmable or other, other forms of digital currencies, they're programmable. So you can actually literally deposit money in a smart contract it's like a computer program that now owns the money and these developers and engineers who are far more talented, I think, than, than you know, the, the, the type of talent that the banking industry is able to attract. And now they're innovating like at a massive rapid speed and that is leading to almost like a new type of a
0: financial system,
1: which is, which is based around these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and so on.
0: Okay, so are you going to wrap all that inside of the label of DeFi? Sort of. I think I think I think of that as even broader than DeFi, but DeFi uh, is, is, is certainly part of it. Well, give me the edges of DeFi and then um, help me understand. Because DeFi is something I don't consider myself super knowledgeable about. I've always been really gun-shy. It just seems too good to be true. Like hearing 10% APY is like, what like that's that's insane so and then you have people it's fifteen thousand percent APY uh so what is DeFi where are the edges of DeFi and how is what you just described going beyond that yeah so I think the way I think about this system is that the
1: current way that Wall Street works is pretty much like a black box to most most people like we have we have no idea how these markets work Mm. Funny enough, even people who work at Wall Street, sometimes they have no idea how these things work. And so imagine that it's these old systems that are kind of like held together by relationships. If, you know, let's say, um, you know, the markets go down, someone is trying to bail out, you know, um, a company. Like they're literally making phone calls, right? Like they they don't know like what's the actual risk probability of, of something happening or how much money, like this is what happened in 2008, like if you've seen any of the the documentaries, Mm -hmm. like these banks couldn't even figure out how much money they would need to even stay, you know, above water. Like they themselves didn't know, right? And now you compare that to this world of open source, transparent systems, where it's like engineers and developers who are coming in or writing computer software, which is transparent, meaning that anyone... Can analyze what the software is doing. Anyone can analyze like what the risk in the system is, right? This, this is sometimes how I describe DeFi to Wall Street people. I would uh, would talk to them and I'll I'll say, you know, what if I can improve your visibility into the risk in the markets? And which Wall Street person doesn't want that? They're like, yes, yes, absolutely. Like I would want to know. I would like to have better visibility into the risk in the markets because then I can, I can make smarter decisions if I know what the risk in the market is. DeFi has 100% visibility into what risk exists in the
0: market and how it's
1: going to work. How is right? that possible? Because, because everything's
0: transparent, right? But the you, individual um, like contracts are transparent, but how do you contextualize them to industry-wide risk?
1: So you can you can model that out, right? So imagine that Wall Street is black box; no one has da- any access to data. They don't know how these systems are interlinked. They don't know that if trigger A happens, what else is going to get triggered. Over here, because all the data is public, all the contracts are 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 transparent. You could actually model it out, right? Like it will take work, but it's mm-hmm. entirely possible. And and these systems have actually. Uh, like recently like a year ago when there was a crash in the markets it was amazing how systematic the DeFi system was and how it held up like if you are if you're getting liquidated the code will liquidate you can you
0: explain liquidation I think I know what it is but you hear that term a lot and yeah I wouldn't want to be on national television trying to explain to people what liquidation is
1: yeah I think think a simple uh, type of liquidation could be That let's say um, you are providing liquidity to a decentralized exchange. Uh, Let's say, you know, uh, it's a a trading pair between Bitcoin and a stablecoin, right? You have Bitcoin. It's just sitting there in your wallet. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to provide liquidity to the exchange. And uh, that means that I'm helping with trading. Like my Bitcoin is actually now being used. And whenever some of the trades happen, I will get some percent of it. So I'm, I'm trying to put my money to be like active use and I'm making money. on.
0: on and item, the way right? that works is I put in, let's say, 100 Bitcoin and maybe they sell 10 of them, but they owe me the 10 plus some fee. And how do I know I'm going to get so, my 10 back? Yeah, exactly. So the way you provide liquidity is that you, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. Like
1: you want to eventually get your Bitcoin back plus some of the fees that were being offered. Right. So what you're doing is you're kind of like um, putting your money in at some sort of a price pair with some risk boundaries that, let's say, because Bitcoin is volatile, let's say Bitcoin kind of like goes down a lot. Then at some point, you know, I, I made the wrong bet and I'll, I'll take some loss there. Right. So it's, it's basically like like imagine when someone says that someone is getting liquidated, It's like they had their loss parameters defined, but you reached the parameters and now someone's coming in and actually liquidating you. So they're. Do they get your Bitcoin? Like, depends on how how it was uh, structured. So you will basically take some sort of a loss in in this particular example that, okay, I came in, let's try to have a simple example. Let's say Bitcoin was 40,000 and I'm like, I'm willing to provide liquidity at Bitcoin 40,000. If it keeps trading plus minus five thousand, that's within the range of this particular liquidity pool and mm-hmm. nothing's gonna happen to me, right? They can tolerate that. But if Bitcoin suddenly drops to like twenty-five thousand, now I'm gonna I'm gonna take a loss. Like I'm gonna take some loss. And they're just what gonna cash you out? So it depends. Like usually the protocols sometimes they would have uh liquidation mechanisms. So they would um it's, it's pretty fascinating. Like, they would actually uh, give incentives for somebody to come in and liquidate a vault.
0: Like, come in and buy. I need a, when somebody is liquidated, what happens? I have 100 in. I've loaned out 10. And then the, the price drops beyond my, um, my risk tolerance that I have set. What happens to my 10? What happens to all? So, I've got 90 still sitting on the books. I've got 10 that are loaned out, essentially. It's, do i it's, lose the 10 yeah it's like a it's like a uh it's like a forced price that you have to take at that point okay so would i take it at the price it dropped to or i take it at the, the threshold i set
1: yeah it, 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 it depends on how it was configured but the worst case scenario would be that you are you would take the lower the lower amount that you'll be forced to sell at at the, at the lower price all all 100 or just the 10 that are loaned out Uh, So in this example, you weren't learning anything out whatever you're putting into the pool would be would be at risk
0: Okay, so if I say if if I say my threshold I have it in at 40,000 meaning one BTC equals forty thousand dollars US So I have that in there. I've got a five thousand USD threshold drop so it could go down to thirty five thousand but it drops down to 25000 now I'm getting my BTC back at their, what? Pu- That's what I don't understand. Are, do they get to keep some of the BTC? Let me, let, me, um, let me maybe try a different example. Let's say,
1: so this is a different example. Um, in this example, you were giving out BTC as collateral. Yep. And you're taking a USD loan against it. Right. Okay. So now, slightly modified example 40,000. Let's say the collateral ratio had to be double or something, right? Because Bitcoin is volatile. Uh, So you had like 80,000 worth of collateral. And let's say you took like 50,000 loan against it. And then markets start crashing. Bitcoin is going down, right? At some point, the protocol has this rule that if your collateral kind of like. falls below a certain amount you could lose you could lose your collateral
0: if you're someone who loves a perfectly cooked steak and wants to get that flawless sear and delicious crust at home then you have to check out this grill everybody's talking about the schwank grill it uses the exact same infrared technology that top steak houses around the world use to get that golden brown crust on the outside and that tender juiciness on the inside. Just recording this makes me want to go make one. This portable outdoor Schwank grill heats up to 1,500 degrees, allowing you to grill the juiciest steak you ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Plus, cook chicken wings, hamburgers, lobster tails, salmon, even pizza, and more in just minutes. And the Schwank grill is made in the USA and is portable so you can use it camping, tailgating, and in your own backyard. This is truly amazing the future of grilling. Just visit schwankgrills.com and use promo code IMPACT to get $150 off a Schwank grill. That's Schwank, baby. S-C-H-W-A-N-K grills.com and use code IMPACT and get $150 off a Schwank grill. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at landroverusa.com. That's landroverusa.com. You you took 50,000 from us in a loan. We're getting 50,000 back. Your collateral just went down in value. So now I'm clawing. It may take all of your collateral to equal the 50,000. In fact, I'm sure that's where they liquidate. Yeah, so that's a different type of liquidation, but maybe it's like simpler. That's to, way to. easier for me to understand. But so now I feel like I get that part. But the first example, why did we abandon that? now, admittedly, I still don't understand it. Uh, but is there is what's the key thing that I'm missing on that one over there? Um,
1: I think it was basically you weren't drawing a loan out, but you were still putting money in a vault and a liquidity pool at certain parameters that I am fine with the prices going up and down in this range. But if the range kind of like if the volatility is more than the range, then some of your um, BTC will get converted to USD at the prices
0: that you wouldn't have liked them to be converted Right because it forced me to sell At a price where hey if I could have held on to it and the price went back up, then I would be in much better shape Yeah, okay I don't understand what would prompt somebody to do that I guess other than they're hoping that it pays out at a premium and that the price doesn't go down But every time I hear liquidation, I'm just like why do people take out debt like this is crazy? So but that's admittedly me just not understanding like I do not understand DeFi even now while I can wrap my head around the part that you're explaining about I used collateral I took out a loan they're going to get that paid back one way or the other and as my collateral drops to that value they're going to snatch it just to make sure that part I totally get but the. So when I originally heard you describe that marketplace that will ultimately be born and efficiencies will be found, you've got these coders and people being incredibly creative with how you do this, what my mind can understand is like microloans, right? So I remember I learned about microloans maybe five or six years ago for the first time. I was like, whoa, that's dope. Like you loan $100 to somebody uh, you know, in a third world country and they can use that, like for them, that's a lot of money. They can start a business, whatever. They can get back up off their feet. They could pay you back, whatever is a reasonable amount. I just thought, man, that's a cool way to do something amazing and make money off it. Word, I love that. And so when I heard you describe like, this will be sort of like the Uber of lenders and borrowers where both lenders and borrowers will get a rating. And so you can decide to do something with somebody and somebody who's paid back, you know, a hundred or a thousand bitcoins, like, oh my God, like, That would be insane. Like that person's obviously doing something right. You could be more comfortable engaging with them. And then I just thought, oh my God, like what are all the creative things that people could do along those lines? But getting into the more extreme APY, we go back to the fundamental problem of, and I'll speak for myself. I don't understand, like I think I understand how Wall Street works. I don't understand puts, calls, stuff like that, no matter how many times I try to wrap my head around it. It just seems like gambling. And if we can all agree that it's gambling, then cool, I understand Wall Street. The moment somebody tries to tell me that it's not gambling to say, hey, I'm gonna guarantee I'll buy that stock should it fall to this price, but if it doesn't fall to that price, you're gonna pay me a premium, you're gonna pay me a premium for having guaranteed you that I would buy it if it did fall to that price, uh, which that is how it works, right? Like, I don't remember if that's a put or a call, but like, that's what you're doing. You're right. You're guaranteeing to buy or sell something at a certain price, right? So I think I think the
1: the, the difference I want to point out is, Wall Street still
0: remains a closed system, black box. Right. Can't black see box.
1: You don't know what's. So going you're on all there. for
0: all of that stuff. Yep. You just want it all to be completely transparent. I mean, those are those are the way
1: I view the world. Is those are different types of financial instruments. Just like you can't stop you know a developer from writing a certain type of code. You can't stop like financial engineers to coming up with new types of financial products. They are gonna do it, right? And if anything, you can't stop them. I mean, I with mean, regulation. But regulation, sure. But it, like it, that's that's another thing with with the uh, the crypto and Bitcoin world because it's global. You don't know which countries' regulations are are mm-hmm. applying, right? Like, sure, maybe you can geofence a product in the U.S. That doesn't stop people from who are non US from using that product, right? So it's a, it's a little bit like these people are gonna build these financial instruments. It's already happening. This market is like very transparent and a lot of really intelligent people are coming in and experimenting together in a very open way uh to build new types of financial markets. And I, I think that's that's that that is something I can support. Like that is that to me is way better than Wall Street, right? Because uh it is it's a little bit like it's a the, Wall Street, to me, feels like an insider's game. Uh, if they do something wrong, sometimes they get pilled out. Like, in, in, in DeFi, who's going to bail you out, right? Like, it's it's a little bit like when markets crash in DeFi. It, it's a very orderly crash at times. You know that when, when this uh, vault is going to get liquidated, this will happen. And then, you know, if this happens then that code path is going to get triggered and and, and this and thing when is going to you say
0: happen. it's an orderly crash just that everybody knows what everybody should end up with it was all entirely predictable it
1: was all programmed and you could have run a simulation through it and you could have you could have and the simulation would give you the same result right and that's that's a lot that's a lot more transparent system and over time that system is going to become much more resilient because there's so much open experimentation happening in when you say resilient Resilient against what? Like resilient, resilient against like, you know, mistakes that could have been avoided. Like uh, if, you know, I let's take a simple example that people learn through different modeling and experimentation and just like messing around that. Oh, you should always have like 150 percent collateral and not less than that, because, you know, people learned because that Mm -hmm. system just had a lot more information available to average normal people around the world. Like anyone can, can participate in, in this system. Right? Anyone can basically start learning. Like you don't have to be in the US. You don't have to work on Wall Street. You don't, you, all you need is an internet connection and the intellectual curiosity to come in and start learning about these things and contributing back to these protocols, right? And, and some of the APY stuff, like usually I know it turns off a lot of people and there are good reasons for why, you know, alarm bells go off when you hear like an insanely high APY. Typically, in DeFi, at least, it's people who are trying to give incentives to users to come and use their product by giving them insane amount of tokens that they have created for that protocol. Right. And, and obviously, like you can see problems like if, you know, they just have too much, too high of an API, uh, you're flooding the market and then maybe the value of that token will start start going down.
0: Okay, so the black box idea is really important to all of this. Let people see what's going on. Do you at all worry about, so remember, this is, for me, this is within the context of, man, come and learn about this stuff. I think this is going to change everything. But in terms of thinking through potential things for people to be thoughtful about, um, in any system like this where it gets Open to everybody. Somebody's going to be better than other people. And it feels like we could really quickly get to a winner take all scenario. Do you worry about that? Like, one of the things that I'm hoping Web3 helps combat is the um, just huge disparity between the haves and have nots. And my hope is that ownership becoming so widely diversified that owning an NFT. Versus it being a financial instrument, but owning it like it's a collectible with utility, whatever, but that because you own it and it has utility that ultimately at some point down the road, you can get some of that value back, more of that value back, whatever, but you own it. So it's not controlled by the company. That's really interesting to me. But getting into like DeFi uh, wars where like AI ratchet is up and people get like insanely good at this. Is there a fear of that or because it's so transparent that it's like, oh, I see what you're doing. Word, I'm going to do the same. Yeah, I I think it's a very competitive market. So in in terms of like
1: winner-take-all type of scenarios that we have seen emerge in Web2, I think those systems tend to kind of like, you know, move towards monopolies or oligopolies. Whereas if a marketplace is like very open and it's very easy for new entrants to come in and actually compete, uh, I think you, you have... A lot more competition and a lot more choices for the users and which is which is something that we are seeing like in 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 certain cases like I think a classic example would be if Twitter was open right any developer could come and use the data uh, build a Twitter like front-end client application you'll see like hundreds of them right and then they're competing on quality they're not it's not like Twitter is saying you can only use this single application Mm. right it's, it's, it's kind of like that in, in DeFi and other marketplaces. Anyone can start a new stablecoin. Anyone can start kind of like a new lending protocol. And then it's really about like your execution, how good kind of like your, your particular implementation of that thing was. And people can even, you know, copy paste some of the code and they can try to like tweak it. And so it's a very competitive open system. And usually I'm a big believer in like open marketplaces, let people compete. And I think consumers typically
0: uh, win uh, when when you have those type of dynamics. Okay, so transparent, we're attracting massive talent, people are coming in and experimenting, we can all see what everybody else is doing, we can fork it, we can tweak it, try it ourselves, and there will hopefully be some sort of natural balance that comes out of that. Um where do you think the future is in terms of regulation like how do we get to that moment safely i know you guys have been and we're going to get into what you're doing in your whole thesis around bitcoin which i find utterly fascinating um but what's the right way like if i were to grant you regulatory powers uh what's the right way to approach this i think um it's 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 abundantly
1: clear now to me especially in the last couple of years that the rate at which this industry is just evolving, regulators just can't even keep up. Right? They're going to try. They, they're going to try. But it's like, I think there, there was some infographic that over the last three months or something like that, 90, nine zero, new decentralized exchanges popped up. Jeez. Right. So even if you 10x or 100x the bandwidth of the existing regulators, you still wouldn't be able to like go after those products. Right, so at some point you need to come up with a different strategy, and the best proposal that I've seen is by uh, Hester Pierce, uh, which is around these um, effectively safe harbors that anyone who starts a crypto project by default has a three-year safe harbor. Right, so by the end of the three years, they have to effectively demonstrate that this protocol is decentralized enough; it's not a company where the company kind of like controls it it's a decentralized thing that they don't control. And uh, just like Bitcoin is truly decentralized, right? Like you can't go to a company and be like, hey, modify Bitcoin. They, no, no one can do it, right? So then at least you get out of the securities regulations because securities regulations apply to things that are securities, which are typically things that, you know, uh, it's, it's like company stock is clearly a security, right? Because that company controls the value of what the, what the stock price would be because of their actions, right? Mm. Um, so I think things like that where uh, there can be something like a safe harbor, which was w- what was which is exactly the thing that was done for the early Internet. Uh, there was like by default a safe harbor. If you wanted to start an Internet business, it's not like you first had to get some sort of a license before you you know, started your web app. Uh, anyone could just do it. And then regulations came in much, much later at really late stage companies who by then, by that time had the the resources to actually be able to afford like a lot of lawyers and compliance officers and this and that, but not like when you are two people sitting in a garage and you're, you're just tinkering with things.
0: Okay, so now looking with all of that context, looking at Bitcoin, you have a really interesting take. So what I found interesting about it is And I think we have to get into maximalists and that whole thing. So they seem to be having an immune response to the very idea of what Ethereum did. So Bitcoin was like, we're sound money, you can't change it. Yay, that's the very thing that makes it magical. Don't write smart contracts on the top of it. Ethereum was like, oh word, we're gonna do then everything that you're refusing to do. And a whole world sprung up around it. And I've heard you say, and I think this is really interesting that Bitcoin is knocking it out of the park from a money perspective, but they're eschewing, like completely ignoring and leaving on the table all of the other things. Um, Walk us through your approach to that, how Stacks is a potential answer um, and why you really want people in the Bitcoin community to start developing on top of it.
1: Yeah, so I
0: think uh, first of all, like Stacks, for people who
1: don't know, um, think of that as a programming layer for Bitcoin. Uh, bitcoin doesn't have smart contracts right bitcoin is very simple like it's very simple at the base layer it's very durable so what bitcoin is trying to do is that it's just money and it is going to be money like 30 years from now or 50 years from now so, so people can after a while they can bitcoin will establish itself as like hey this thing doesn't change it doesn't go away it's rock solid you know it does one thing and it does that thing really, really well. Right? Like that's what Bitcoin is doing. And I think it's it's winning at that game, right? Um, and, but then people want to experiment, right? Their smart contracts are, uh, it, it's a, it's a little bit like the confusion I feel comes from the fact that both this idea of sound money and the idea of smart contracts started from blockchains. NFTs also start from blockchains, right? But people don't confuse NFTs with Sound money like this—they—they they feel different enough, right? Uh, just because like they're both coming from uh, the same technology doesn't mean they're the same thing, right? Uh, smart contracts have very different requirements, and from a money layer, right? So this is something. Uh, let me let me roll back a little bit, right? So when I look at the landscape of different projects and you know how Web three is different from Web two and decide and i need to decide like where should i spend my time and energy right so it's a a very big decision because you could be wrong right like imagine that you were early in the internet and you thought that aol is going to be the internet right and you spend a ton of time and energy and money and resources trying to build a business on aol and then aol disappeared right versus something else took off right Uh, so i think that's a very very important like you know critical question and so I've thought a lot about it. And my reasoning is that the thing that is different about these blockchains from the previous systems, the number one thing that's different is decentralization, right? If something is not truly decentralized, right, you're losing the, the best property uh, that these, these systems bring. And Bitcoin by far is the most decentralized blockchain out there. And, and, and same, same thing with, um, you know, ownership. Like when you were when you talking about NFTs, what is ownership? Ownership is linking this back to the, the uh, conversation we were having earlier. Like most people don't think about, you know, how do I own my house? Because the laws, at least in Western countries, seem to work. Mm-hmm. But if you were in a much more kind of like hostile type of environment, you would be worried about do I really own my house or not, right? So for NFTs, you really don't want to be in a situation where you had a lot of valuable NFTs. Five years passed, and the system on which those NFTs were defined
0: basically just disappeared or became in, became unstable. This right? this is so random, and I really do run the risk of derailing you. But something just clicked in my head. So I've heard you talk about being from Pakistan before. You mentioned it earlier as well that. There something psychological breaks down when you're not sure if you own that thing and as you were talking just now I was like, oh, that's really interesting because if I wasn't sure if I owned my house I wouldn't want to put money into it, right? I also wouldn't want to put physical energy into it So I wouldn't spend the time doing it up if I don't spend the time doing it up Then it doesn't increase in value if I don't own something that's increasing in value I can't pass it on to the next generation even I don't have to lean on it and so you've taken this what here in the West we think of it as this incredibly smart place to invest your time, energy, emotion into a house, into like, it's the thing I'm going to leave to my kids, whatever. And so even if all you do is hold it and improve it because you love it and you want to see it, you know, it's like a reflection of this is mine, whatever, that all of that energy, you know, so if Bitcoin is, is literal energy stored in a computer system, manifested as money, a house is the energy of how well you upkeep it. If you're afraid that I'm not really sure that I own this or if you outright don't own it, you wouldn't put that kind of investment into it. Now, if I take that same concept to the digital world or to money, if money is deflating, it creates, and this isn't me guessing, this is true, when money is being inflated away into madness, people don't save, they spend. And so you have artificially altered human behavior by what you do on the back end money. Now, people don't even understand it, but the incentives arise to be like, yo, I'm better off having this in uh, frozen food because, you know, inflation is happening so rapidly. This how I'm talking in a hyperinflationary environment, but I'm better off having this in frozen food because at least that might last for a year, 18 months where my money could be worth half in that amount of time. So you've created this bizarre incentive for people to, in that case, load up on food. So as we think through why this is so revolutionary and why there's something, and here's the great news for anybody in my audience, I'm just dumb enough to really have to grapple with this shit. And so it like clumbles around in the back of my mind is like, there's something here, there's something big, I can feel it and then I'll get a piece of information like what you just said, which will make a piece click into place, which is what this is allowing to happen at a financial level is you're giving me the incentive to learn this, to put energy into it. Going back to this idea of really smart people coming in and playing with these financial instruments by not having it be a black box, by opening up to people that are already sort of mathematically minded because of that's what draws them to the code, you're getting the best and the brightest to experiment in something where the, the user of that is now incentivized to learn about it, to put that time and energy because they can own it. Wow, that's really interesting and I think is gonna echo really hard because I have never paid attention to financial stuff because it just doesn't seem worth my time and energy. Maybe because it's black box, maybe because it's just too weird for me, um, but I find myself drawn to bitcoin for all the reasons that you were just laying out so sorry i know i derailed this but that feels meaningful in terms of how there's this invisible expenditure of energy that's people are saying but it had never clicked for me until now no i think i think you're 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 spot on right so
1: that's that's the thing and then if you so if bitcoin is building kind of like this trust in the minds of people that this thing is durable this thing is going to be around for decades for centuries i think that is valuable right because this in the at the end of the day it's going to be humans who are going to decide what currency or cryptocurrency becomes the reserve currency of the planet right and bitcoin seems to have that network effects that more and more people day after day like now even countries or even you know, public companies are comfortable putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And I do think it's important that it's durable, it's simple, it's not going to change. And now you compare that to something like Ethereum or other blockchains, which are effectively their smart contract platforms. They're not, Ethereum is trying to be money now, like in the last two years. It didn't start off as trying to be money. And those things have an inherent conflict. And I'm not the only person saying that, right? Like Vitalik, who started Ethereum, like there, there's a recent blog post he had, like maybe it came out like four or five weeks ago, where at, he was looking back at the past five years of Ethereum, what type of design decisions they made, what went well, what didn't. And then the conclusion was that Ethereum needs to decide, does it want to be more simple like Bitcoin? Or does it want to be more complex and experimental, which is which is how smart contracts need to be, right? Because so many people need to come and innovate and change things. And Ethereum is both things in the same box, in the same layer. The only thing people need to understand about Stacks is that it's simply a two-layer solution on top of Bitcoin. So there's no tension between a money layer and a smart contract layer, right? Bitcoin is the money layer, Stacks is the smart contract layer. What
0: creates the tension in Ethereum when Uh, it's both?
1: Because at the same layer, um, what you're saying is, to be better money, Ethereum needs to simplify. Have less features, less complexity, right? Don't upgrade the protocol, like be stable, like Bitcoin,
0: right? Because, because otherwise there's too many question marks, like, too many am I going to own this? Is it going to be the same as it is today? Let's, I let, stop investing in let, that house. Yeah, Let's say
1: I'm, I am I'm keeping my money as a savings account in Bitcoin. And I know Bitcoin is not going to change. I'm keeping my money as a savings account in Ethereum. And there's like, I don't know if they're going to change the consensus algorithm. What's mm-hmm. going to happen to my money when, when they do that? Right? Like it's a, it's, it just adds unpredictability. And that's not a good property for a money layer. A money layer network, you know, I think we can agree it needs to be simple, durable.
0: It's going to just do the thing that it's designed to do. So you with Stacks can build a ton of complexity on top of Bitcoin, Bitcoin. but it doesn't alter any of the fundamental properties that make it attractive as sound money.
1: Exactly. So if you are interested in Bitcoin only as a money layer, you can just ignore Stacks. Like it doesn't exist for you. You don't care. You're only using Bitcoin. If you care about smart contracts, uh, then in addition to running the Bitcoin software, you run the Stacks software as well. And Stacks does very interesting things with Bitcoin because, One of the reasons why it's great to have smart contracts around around crypto assets is that people can start programming things more easily, right? So you can actually, Ethereum, like around 22 to 25% of Ethereum is productive, meaning it's deployed into DeFi, into other types of assets. People can earn yields on it. It's not that easy to do that with Bitcoin. This is what Stacks is changing. Bitcoin is a trillion dollars of capital. Like imagine, it's like one of the biggest opportunities where... I think the only thing missing on the Bitcoin side is better developer tooling, better p- programming layers like stacks. One, but that's sol- That's just engineering, right? Like we have solved that problem. But if you are an engineer or entrepreneur or developer, someone says like, here is a trillion dollars of, of capital. Go and build things on top of it. And by the way, not a lot of people are doing that today, like this year, because relatively more people are trying to build on the newer... You know blockchains like solana avalanche ethereum right because because most people are for some reason is bitcoin is in the blind spot that might not be the case next year or the year after right but at least right now
0: end up in the blind spot i've heard you talk about this i think it's important
1: i think the reason is that because for so many years bitcoin has been fighting this this thing and you 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 said uh, you made a comment about maxis before a lot of the community members they tend to guard Bitcoin. That they basically say, don't make any changes to Bitcoin. So a developer comes in, says that, you know what, I want to build this interesting thing. It's going to require this particular change on Bitcoin. The answer is almost always no. Right? They go to Ethereum or they go to a newer blockchain and they they say, hey, I want to build this thing It's going to require like this change. People are very friendly. They're very welcoming there because they're not building a money layer. I think the fundamental Aspect is like very very different. So that's why a lot of developers have been getting attracted to these ecosystems and then comes along Stacks. It only launched like last year and our community is just as friendly. A lot of developers, somebody comes in and says I want to build something that's going to require like this particular upgrade. Stacks can upgrade independent of Bitcoin. Right? So no zero changes required at the at the Bitcoin layer. And all of the changes, new features for smart contracts for developers, anything that they need. Let's say someone comes in and, and says, "Like I want to create an NFT standard." Sure, go ahead, do it at the stacks layer, and 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 you you kind of like leave the money layer alone. So I think that's the base idea. It's 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 literally that simple. That it instead of having both those things, money and smart contracts, in the same layer, just have it as two layers, which is a very tried and tested thing in the internet architecture which is my background i think that's why some of the design kind of like uh, inspiration comes from that in the internet the lower layers of the internet are very very simple like TCP/IP just does one thing right then people built a layer of complexity on top of it right people built the, the world wide web they started building other layers of complexity on top so if bitcoin becomes you know completely Uh, ubiquitous around the world like it literally becomes the money there our bet is there would be a lot of value created on top of bitcoin right as and and that's where layers like like stacks come in
0: and do you see so the narrative of bitcoin as digital gold is so clean and easy to understand but because inherent in that analogy is that i don't pay for things in gold and I actually feel weird about like I've completely gotten my head around spending ETH, even though you could buy something one day that's, you know, a pizza, and then the next day that's like you just paid seven thousand dollars for that pizza. Yep. Uh which there's the famous Bitcoin story, like a hundred and eighty million dollars or whatever for a pizza. Um do you see people eventually adopting Bitcoin as money? Even though it's like, oh God, like I'm holding it. It's going up in value. Like, do you see that only happening when it sort of stops being a high volatility asset?
1: No, that's, that's a great question, right? So this is something that, you know, maybe four years ago, if you would ask me the question, uh, I would have said, hey, maybe it could be a payments mechanism as well. It's crystal clear to me and a lot of other Bitcoiners now as well that Bitcoin is um, a store of value, right? You're not going to buy coffee with Bitcoin. Um, and, and there are things like Lightning. Again, it's a layer. It's a payments layer. It's a fast payments layer uh, where you can actually spend small amounts of Bitcoin with very small fees very, very efficiently. And maybe maybe you don't even want to do that, right? The where, where I think this is heading is right now we're at the stage of Bitcoin as digital gold. Basically, it's a savings account, right? You're putting money in there. You know that everything you know, um, there's inflation happening, other assets are actually going down in value, and I'm just storing wealth in Bitcoin. That's the use case today. The next step is going to be when Bitcoin becomes truly productive, and, and hopefully Stacks enables that, meaning that most people, if they have a Bitcoin wallet, there are two things you can do with it. One, transfer, like you move Bitcoin from one place to another. Two, nothing. You just hold it, Right those are literally the only operations supported in a Bitcoin wallet. Through the work that we are are doing, Stacks, now in a Bitcoin wallet, you would be able to swap. Let's say you are going to go from BTC to a stablecoin. You want to purchase a Bitcoin NFT. Like you could just do it from from a Bitcoin wallet. So we are making Bitcoin productive by adding a programming layer on top of it. So that's, I think, step two of the evolution of Bitcoin, where it will go from, hey, I can hold Bitcoin, but I could also get a 5% yield on my Bitcoin in a decentralized way if I want to. So it becomes productive capital. And then the final step is going to be, which you know most people are not viewing Bitcoin as that right now, is that it becomes a settlement layer for Web3. Right? Where the idea is that, let's say you're building a decentralized application on a smaller blockchain. Right now, it's harder to build that application on Bitcoin. But let's say it becomes easier in the, in the next year or two. Would you let's take Twitter as an example. Let's let's compare if Twitter was built on Solana versus Twitter was built on Bitcoin, right? Meaning that it settles information on Bitcoin. So if someone needs to take away your user Twitter username, they need to attack the Bitcoin network versus they need to attack I don't want to pick on Solana, I'm friends with those people, but you want to attack the Solana network. I think even today, in 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 this year, people can feel like, yeah, attacking Bitcoin is going to be a lot harder, right? Versus attacking this this other chain where you know who the company behind it is. You know how this blockchain kind of like goes offline, comes back online, right? So it's like it's like intuitive. People already understand that. So once that happens, when these decentralized applications are settling information in the Bitcoin blockchain, the number one property is decentralization. You don't want your NFTs to disappear. Like if you want your NFTs to live for decades, do you want the ownership to be defined in Bitcoin or do you want it to be defined in a new blockchain that started last year and might disappear five years from now, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that's the core difference and that's going to be the third stage where people realize that Web3 is actually more valuable if it it settles on Bitcoin and everyone just agrees that, hey, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the best settlement layer. And Bitcoin is designed to be a settlement layer. Like the transactions on the main Bitcoin chain in the future, they're going to be very, very expensive, but people would have the right incentives to, do, to make those, those transactions.
0: So when you look forward, is this a multi-chain world? Is this a Bitcoin eats everything world? How do you see it? I think
1: that in the short term, uh, short term meaning the next five years, we're likely going to see more chains, right? So we're we are basically um, right now um, experimenting and we're we are growing and we're checking what's possible. Right. So in the next five years, I'm fairly confident that we'll see more and more chains. We'll see bridges between these chains. We'll see tons of experimentation. And I don't know when consolidation will start, but I do think at some point we'll start seeing consolidation. My best guess right now is it's not going to be like there's just one
0: chain, right? Yeah, when you say consolidation, do you mean that they're going to collapse and go away because they didn't function or they buy each other up? What do you mean? I, I, I think like it could be that... Um, the
1: blockchains die very hard right so uh, one of the first blockchains i experimented with it was called namecoin right this is 2013 or so namecoin uh, satoshi was involved with namecoin this is how old it is it started in 2011 that project like kind of like people stopped working on it people start using it kind of like chugged along for years and years and years i think now it maybe still has a million or two million market cap right mm-hmm. so it blockchains die very 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 over a very long time they survive for a long time right so i don't think but but less people would start uh, uh, people would move over let's say if, if a lot of uh, a lot of traffic is moving over to a to a blockchain like over a couple of years it will become kind of like apparent that this thing is growing and this other thing is not growing right that's what i mean by consolidation that it will become clear. Right now it's an open market, right? People have their thesis that, hey, is it gonna be Avalanche? Is it gonna be Solana? Is it gonna? And everyone's excited and everyone's kind of like working towards it. I think five years from now, like some winners would have emerged in, 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 in the ecosystem. And it might not be uh, that there's one clear winner. It might be that some chains specialize, like maybe some chain becomes really good at gaming or some chain becomes really good at NFTs. Uh, I I don't honestly I don't know but my best guess is in any of those permutations I just cannot come up with a permutation where Bitcoin is not playing a very large role Mm. and I think that's my thesis like I might not not know the rest of the stuff but my confidence level that Bitcoin is going to be around and it will be playing
0: a very important role is actually very very high. And I'm assuming that that is your call to arms for people to come and work on Bitcoin, that it's the one that like probably right now I would say has the best PR, it's the one that people know the most about. And if we saw the same kind of development activity at that layer, that abstracted layer, like you're doing with Stacks, that people would naturally gravitate towards that for its stability, they already understand it, they're already there. Um, The only thing that I'm still struggling with a little bit is I would have to get my head around buying a coffee with Bitcoin, even if I'm not buying coffee, I'm buying NFTs or whatever, because... One of the things that drives me crazy about um, NFTs on Ethereum is on layer one to justify, I mean, gas right now, because we're in a bit of a lull, uh, has gotten way more reasonable and people have gotten way better at writing the smart contracts. But there for a while, it was like, you were gonna spend $150, $200 on gas or more. And so you're not gonna sell a $20 item. It wouldn't make sense. So everything became expensive and high end, And I was just like, wow, I don't think this goes anywhere until you can bring the prices down and you can make this just de rigueur, to be honest. Like, I get how special everything feels right now. It's on the blockchain that makes it exotic and amazing. And my thing is, yes, but I would love to live in a world where you not everything has to be an expensive purchase. Right. And so as somebody who uh, I can afford some of the finer things in life and yet when my wife asked me what i want for my birthday the answer is a six dollar manga right so it's like i just love it and so um, going onto layer two becomes very interesting but i've already crossed the chasm of eth is to be spent and i worry that if people don't cross that bridge with bitcoin i'm so paranoid about spending bitcoin on something and then Bitcoin, you know quintuples in price over the next 10 years and I'm like, I'm an idiot I should have just been saving it. I I think I think there is a very
1: interesting um, design space of uh, Stable coins that are actually backed by Bitcoin and we will we'll we'll come back to almost like Bitcoin is gold and just like we had Fiat that was actually gold-backed We'll get stable coins that are backed by Bitcoin in some ways. It's already happening like if you look at Terra Terra is an algorithms-based uh, stablecoin. It doesn't have collateral. They started buying Bitcoin reserves because they realized that uh, Bitcoin is the best form of money. Right? And so Terra Protocol has bought like $3, 4000000000 billion of Bitcoin just in the last six months or so. And through the work that we are doing with, with Stacks, because we bring smart contracts to Bitcoin, some new entrepreneur could actually start a stablecoin that is literally backed by Bitcoin, directly using stacks right what Terra is doing is manual like they're going off on the market they have a multi-sig they're kind of like buying bitcoin and putting it in their reserve so this is this is what i mean by like permissionless innovation um and interestingly let me let me come back to this idea of um you know one chain versus other chains and so on so uh, if you look at you know some of the criticism for the approach of like stacks as a programming layer with bitcoin people would criticize Oh, um there aren't as many developers on it as compared to Ethereum or there isn't as much liquidity on it as compared to Ethereum, right? Look at like we are talking about a game plan for decades to come and these things are so short-lived. Like imagine Solana like 12 months ago. Mm. Solana has less had less liquidity, like Solana had less developers. It's it's a just this point in time that, oh, USDC is not launched on Stacks yet. They might delay it by like three months, six months, nine months. Like these are months, right? Like you're, you're talking about what is the thing that is going to survive over decades. And yes, there will be more liquidity. Yes, more developers are already coming, right? Uh, it's a little bit like there's also an interesting um, dynamic here where as crypto industry becomes bigger and we start reaching the mainstream when you're talking about mainstream gamers would they want to earn ethereum or avalanche or something else that they've never heard about or would they want to just get get paid in bitcoin Mm. right we already have evidence like there are gaming companies that are coming to the stacks ecosystem they're like people want to just get paid in bitcoin they've heard about bitcoin maybe they're grandmother understands what what or have heard about like what bitcoin is they have never heard about any of these other stuff that the crypto native people uh, understand right so as the industry becomes more mainstream i think it's actually more of an argument for bitcoin winning and the network effects of bitcoin actually getting stronger because it's the first to reach the mass market it's the first thing that people still learn about when uh when when the hear about cryptocurrencies mm. right so you can solve the developer tooling challenge you can solve the liquidity stuff like those are developer tooling is just engineering right liquidity is just a bunch of companies bringing their assets to a chain those there's no rocket science behind that but the with the dynamics around how bitcoin started how it became what it is like i don't think you can reproduce that i don't think you can compete against it so that's the unique thing and i think your focus should be on like what's unique and then you ride the wave with with the kind of like, you know, once in a lifetime event that's happening, which is actually Bitcoin and, and, and try to kind of like fill in the rest of the gaps.
0: That's that's kind of like the thesis that, that we have. All right. So playing that out in the real world, you mentioned earlier um, countries putting this on their, uh in their treasury. City coins, city tokens, whatever they're called. That's a really interesting phenomenon. Speaking of Bitcoin being the one that people lean on, was Stacks involved in in what's going on with City Coins? Yes, City
1: Coins were launched what they u- using Stacks. So they're very, very interesting idea. Uh, this guy uh, Patrick, who's actually going to pick me up after this podcast, so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll introduce you. Uh, and he, Balaji, a bunch of other people, like they've been brainstorming about this idea of how do you onboard cities to web three, right? Like at some point cities did figure out like the traditional internet, right? They have web services where you can log into DMV and like, Mm -hmm. you know, do something online. And it's like, what is the role of a city in a web three world, right? Like that's kind of like the intellectually curious type of a thinking line. And from there, I think um, this idea is, is something like what if cities Are incentivized to build up crypto treasuries right there could be donations that you know some people just want to support let's say miami Uh, some people want to support the city and they're just willing to give flat-out donations or there is some sort of a city-specific token where as part of the mining process like part of part of the uh, the rewards are, are automatically going to the city treasury right and once the city has a treasury Um, It can utilize it in a way that is, let's say, specifically for Miami, because, you know, Mayor Suarez has been like very uh, supportive and and forward thinking about about these concepts. Let's say Mayor Suarez wants to attract more entrepreneurs or more talent or companies to Miami. Now they have a crypto treasury that maybe they can, you know, put it in a um, put the treasury to work by uh, borrowing stable coins against it. And giving out loans to entrepreneurs who want to move to the to the city. I'm just like you know throwing ideas out mm-hmm. there. But once once they become like comfortable with with crypto, they onboard the city to crypto. Uh, a lot of like interesting possibilities start from there. And and the wildest idea is that if every city ends up having its own token, so Miami has you know Miami coin. Uh, people who just want to be involved with the governance process of the treasury could decide to participate you might not even be living in miami but let's say you grew up there and you want to have a voice in how that treasury is being used by by the local government you can have your share of 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 the tokens and you can participate in the governance process which might actually be a very interesting way to actually incentivize people or just make it easy for people to actually interact more with their local city government it's a very
0: interesting way to vote on who you think is doing things well
1: yeah and, and then the market dynamics could also be interesting. Let's say, you know, there is a San Francisco uh, equivalent coin and San Francisco local government makes some horrible local decisions and the price starts tanking because people are shorting it, right? This is all fictitious. Like, of this course, is all right? fictitious, right? But it could happen. And I think it's very interesting where, again, the same concept, like, you know, going back to how Wall Street is a black box and DeFi is more transparent. Uh, if a city is holding money as a crypto treasury, it's very transparent. It's very transparent how they're involving the citizens or not citizens or the holders of the tokens in the governance process. Like, are they actually listening to people? Like, uh, how is voting being done? So suddenly you flip everything open and and local city governments, which is again, kind of like a black box. Nobody really knows what they do, how they function. It becomes both interesting to your, your younger generation who are now sitting in front of a laptop. They already have a crypto wallet and they're just intrigued that, you know what? <laughs> Mayor Suarez is actually listening to me and I, I want to I wanna give him my, my feedback and, and I'm going to attach a proposal and let's see maybe the proposal will get accepted. So I think th- those are like very interesting, obviously very early stage ideas, but this general space,
0: I think, uh, has, has a lot of potential. Dude, I agree so aggressively. Where can people follow along with you and learn more about what you're doing, how you think about this space? It's, I think, very useful. Yes, so
1: I um, am on Twitter, fairly active there. It's my first name, uh, which
0: is at Muneeb, M-U-N-E-E-B. That's the place? Amazing, man. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. This stuff is so fascinating. I learned so much researching you and talking to you. It really feels like this tectonic shift is happening right now, and I am desperate to get people involved. So, boys and girls, please look into this. There is something changing so rapidly right now, and if you don't learn about it now, it will pass you by. As Munib said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but it's happening right this very minute, and it all starts with getting educated. So, um, I hope that this Primer has served you all well. And speaking of things that will serve you well, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.